Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Jane Daly, author of the book White Fright, The Sexual Panic at the Heart of America's Racist History. Jane, thanks so much for joining us. I'm really happy to be here. Could you please tell my listeners a little bit about who you are and how you came to write this book and and how long it took you to write this book? (laughs) I'm sorry, that's classified information. (laughs) So I'm, I'm an associate professor of history at the University of Chicago. I came to write this book in part uh, out of my original scholarly work. So my dissertation in my first book, uh, which was a book called Before Jim Crow, uh, The Politics of Race in Post-Emancipation Virginia. And that book was about a successful interracial political coalition in the state of Virginia that uh, actually ran the state of Virginia for four years, 1879 to 1883. And they elected two United States senators and a congressman and the governor and scores of local officials. At the local official, many of those were African-American. And so to make a long story short, this very successful interracial coalition is crushed in 1883 in a a combination of voter fraud and white supremacist violence. The arguments, among the arguments made at the time, were things like, if this party stays in power, black men will be teaching your children in school and will be punishing them. And then there would be a cartoon of like a black man with a little girl, a little white girl across his lap. Or if black men can vote, they'll marry your daughter. And it's hard for us, I think, sometimes to take these arguments seriously, but they were credible and persuasive at the time. And later on, when I began to look at reaction um, after the Brown decision in 1954, I thought, oh, this sounds really familiar. And that's kind of how I came to write this book. I wanted to see, well, how do you get from where I started in the Reconstruction era up through the civil rights movement? And then where do we end up? And the time period you're looking at, like you said, it goes from the Reconstruction era to it actually ends at uh, the case Loving. I never remember the full name of the case. I always remember Versus Loving. Virginia. <laughs> and we actually have spoken to Cheryl Cashin, who wrote a book called Loving. Yes, she did. About the, basically a, a similar or, or related topics back in October 2017, if anyone wants to go back and listen to that. When... You're talking to people, especially nowadays, what do we most misunderstand about the period of post-Civil War reconstruction and how it affects us today? Well, I I think we may understand that a lot better now um, than we did a week ago. So one of the things that people have said uh, repeatedly after this week's assault on the Congress is, this isn't us, right? This isn't America. And any historian of the South will say, Oh, yes, it is. It is us, and we've seen it before, and we saw it a lot in the Reconstruction South, where interracial government after interracial government was torn down through violence and electoral fraud. And we may not have seen you know, a wild-eyed uh, white mob storm the United States Capitol before, but we have seen those mobs 100 years ago storming state capitals to overturn democratically elected governments. Uh, through violence and a a white supremacist ideology that I think wasn't as obviously on the face here this time around, but certainly was a century ago. And just to orient my listeners as they're hearing this, you and I are talking on January 11th, 
And I had planned to have you on before the January 6th events happened. But certainly as I was preparing for this episode, I saw a lot that was being reflected in this book, particularly when we're talking about the area of lynching and and mob violence. What was it like for you as a historian of that period to watch the events of January 6th? I mean, it was appalling. Weirdly, part of me wasn't surprised because I have seen this before um, or seen, you know, in, in my imagination. So part of me wasn't surprised, but I, but it was just horrifying. And, and I guess especially uh, for me to see the Confederate battle flag paraded through the halls of Congress. You know, we just finally got Robert E. Lee out of the Statuary Hall in Congress a couple of weeks ago. They, you know, removed the greatest tra- traitor in American history so far. So I found it just, you know, the whole thing appalling, but, but also fascinating, obviously. One of the strains that existed in the discourse about lynching at the time you talk about is sexual violence towards white women by Black men. This was sort of a narrative. But when you went back and you looked at the various incidents that occurred, you said that even the allegation was only made in about a third of the cases. Other times it may have been, you know, a a business owner or someone trying to exercise their voting rights. Um, So can you talk about how and why that became a narrative that was so powerful and that was used to explain away this violence? So first, first, I have to give credit to Ida Wells. Um, Ida Wells Barnett, who was a crusading African-American woman, reformer woman, you know, women's suffrage advocate, um, equal rights advocate. And she was the one who first did try to look at statistics to see uh, whether or not there was really a causal link between lynching and any kind of sexual violence towards white women. And she found none. And that research was sound and has been built upon in recent years. But as her basic research uh, that found that not even, you know, a third of people who got lynched were even accused of that really said, you know, this is not the cause. This is not driving this. There is no epidemic of violence against white women anywhere in the South. How did this become this narrative? Why was this the driving narrative that resulted in so much violence when a lot of the true reasons when you go back and you look is that the people were angered by, say, a black man being a business owner or trying to exercise their right to vote. Right. So one of the things that fascinated me when I started the research on this book, so I came into this book with a lot of knowledge about Reconstruction, and I went back a little bit to begin the book to emancipation, to 1865, and the Reconstruction Amendments to the Constitution. And one of the things I noticed from the very beginning was that if you look at uh, slavery, you don't see this preoccupation. You don't have white slave owners saying, gosh, can't leave the women unattended because my slaves will you know, go and rape them. Quite the contrary. You see Southern plantation owners bragging that their slaves were loyal during the war. And you know, he left his wife and children and, and not a hair on their head was harmed. Very rapidly after emancipation, you get this new narrative of the black man as sexual predator, sexual threat. And what was interesting to me in that moment was to see that this is a political argument um, as much as anything else. 
that it, it may reflect sexual anxieties on behalf of white men. And a lot of people have looked into, well, you know, white men were really sort of beat up after the Civil War in the South, down and out, etc. But for me, I was interested in seeing how this argument entered political discourse along with black suffrage. And this preoccupation with race goes back to an old discussion as well about miscegenation. Could you talk a little bit about how that was codified in laws after Reconstruction and how courts used this fear as justification for you know, oppression of, of Black Americans? All of the Southern states had laws against uh, interracial marriage and most of them also against interracial sex, sometimes just marriage. One of the interesting things that happens after Reconstruction is a number of the Southern states get rid of those laws because they're being run at that time by Republicans. They're being run by African-Americans and usually, you know, white, what they would say, carpetbaggers, or their friends from the North, as they would say. So you see that people regarded those, African-Americans regarded those laws as an infringement of their rights. And it was pretty high on their list to get those off in the years during Reconstruction. After Reconstruction has been overthrown, then you see states going right back again and putting these laws in place. And then by the 20th century, you see it uh, moving west, especially. Places like Wyoming um, had an anti-miscegenation law. California had an anti-miscegenation law. That actually, California's predated the Civil War. But so it's not, my point is just it's not only in the South that you have this argument and you have restrictive marriage laws. One of the things I found interesting that you were explaining was Part of the reason for codifying that no relationship, sexual or marital, could take place between people of different races was it essentially complicated government's ability to categorize you if you think of race as a thing that exists and that can be passed on genetically. So could you talk a little bit about, you say that there are three major opportunities for the government to label people and how those were used and, you know, what different ways they would find to categorize you as white or Negro or mulatto. Right. So the first one is at birth when you're categorized. And this is interesting. It's actually, it's midwives were the ones who delivered most American babies in the end of the 19th century and into the 1920s and 30s. And in some states, and Virginia was the most prominent, there was an effort by uh, male doctors not only to sort of take over the business of women delivering babies, but to vilify the midwives for saying that they weren't actually being honest or clear about racial categories, um, that they were saying people were white when the man thought they weren't white. It can be a fraught moment at birth trying to decide who somebody is. The next one is, is when you start school. So when you had the segregated school system, again, there are stories of people trying to get their kids into school, and sometimes somebody who they have a feud with says, that kid isn't white, so then you get trouble. And then the third is when people marry, and you have to go and get a license from a county official, and that county official has a lot of latitude to question you and to say, you know, are you who you say you are? There's a really interesting case that you talk about in the book, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit of background 
about the Rhinelander case and then read a short passage from your book. The Rhinelander case has been written quite a bit about because it's it's very well documented. It's very interesting. It happened in New York, not in the South. And there what you have is um, a young man named Leonard Rhinelander, who was the scion of a very, very old and a very, very wealthy New York family, the Rhinelanders. He married secretly a woman he'd met who was uh, the daughter of a chauffeur and nominally white. And his family was horrified when this happened. And they immediately said, she's not white. She's colored. Her family somewhere in their background. You know, they came from the West Indies. Her father, who says he's an Englishman, is an Englishman, but from, you know, the Caribbean. And so they insisted that Leonard um, sue for divorce under grounds of her having committed fraud, her not telling him the truth about her race. Um, he was very against this, and they effect- effectively bully him into it and, like, spirit him out of the state in order to get this done. So I'll say the 1925 Rhinelander trial was a sensation, carried on the front pages of newspapers across the country. The popular allure was twofold. In addition to the question of racial identity, the class gulf between Leonard and Alice was seemingly impassable. Philip Rhinelander's fortune, gained through his family's 250-year-old shipping business and supplemented by large land holdings in Manhattan, was estimated at $3 million. His son Leonard's was considered to be about $400,000 at the time of the trial. The family was counted among Carolyn Astor's original list of the 400 society families in New York. Alice worked, among other things, as a housekeeper. Interracial marriage was legal in the state of New York. There was never any question about the validity of the union. The case turned on questions of racial knowledge. Had Alice deceived Leonard as to her race? Or did he know of her heritage and dismiss its importance? How possible was it to discern Alice's racial background? The challenge was whether separating white from non-white was feasible in a world of racial hybridity, one marked by waves of anonymous humanity rolling from south to north in the Great Migration. The Rhinelander case was about knowledge, about recognition, about the capacity of white elites to recognize non-whites even when they presented themselves as white. Anti-miscegenation laws theoretically protected white quote-unquote racial identity, as it was becoming known in the 1920s, but in places like New York, which lacked any such status, what was to protect whiteness? The vigilance of white men and their capacity to recognize race and thus protect the precious commodity of whiteness were all that stood between increasing numbers of mixed-race people and white racial purity. So the jury in the case looked to two bodies of evidence to establish Alice Jones Rhinelander's racial identity and to address the question of fraud. First, they looked to the Jones family. The family with whom Leonard had spent so much time, even living with them after the wedding while the newlywed's apartment was being readied, made no efforts to portray themselves uh, as white, despite the undisputed white racial identity of Alice's mother, Elizabeth. Alice confounded racial assessors. Her birth certificate and a New York State census identified her as mulatto. Her marriage certificate listed her as white. Alice seems to have passed situationally in public spaces, like hotels and restaurants, when being black was awkward or inconvenient. Alice's darker sister, Emily, identified as Negro. Emily's husband considered himself a black man. The key question for the jury was whether Alice's blackness was written somewhere on her body. Leonard and Alice's all-but-pornographic correspondence was read in court. 
It was an all-male jury, I should say. The love letters detailed, among other things, Leonard's felonious practice of cunnilingus. Lovers who had experienced such intimacy should recognize each other. In a dramatic and sensational move, the jury asked Alice to partially disrobe so that they could see her back and legs. Alice complied with this degrading request in the judge's chambers, cleared of all but judge, jury, and Leonard. The white men of the jury declared Alice mixed race. Given their physical intimacy, the jury determined, Leonard Rhinelander should have been able to read Alice's body as easily as the jurors, who promptly found that Alice had not committed fraud. Leonard was sent by his father to Las Vegas to obtain a divorce. The idea of Alice having to disrobe in a room full of men in this legal proceeding, as I was reading the book, that really struck me. And that they found in favor of her technically in saying she had not committed fraud, but that must have been such a violating experience for her. Do you have any idea what happened to her afterwards? Yes. So, so she, she did not want to get divorced, and she refused uh, to sign divorce papers and really held out um, for quite some, quite some years, uh, eventually made a deal. I think it was an annulment that she agreed to in the end. Uh, she always kept her name as uh, Rhinelander and her, tried to have her title be Mrs. Rhinelander, which you can imagine some people said and some people didn't. Um, she lived a long time. Leonard died very soon thereafter. He was never very healthy in the first place. Mm. And this was not the only you know, case that you outline in your book. And one of the things I found fascinating was some of the court battles that you outlined and also the legal theories that were being launched uh, around it. There was a case with Hugo Black that was also surrounding another marriage, but actually a homicide in which a Catholic priest was murdered. That was another one that I'd love for you to tell our listeners about. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's, that was something. So that that is in the 1930s in Alabama, where Hugo Black, who, of course, becomes a justice of the Supreme Court uh, a, few years, a few years after this, becomes the lawyer for a man who kills the Catholic priest who has first converted his daughter and then married her to what the father called a black man, was actually a man from Puerto Rico who had never identified as anything other than white in the way Puerto Ricans did in the United States. And he kills the priest, and it's right in the middle of the Klan activity, that when the Klan is at its height, sorry, this is in the 19, I think it's 1932, the Klan is at its height of act activity in the South, and the Klan was extraordinarily anti-Catholic as well as um, anti-Black and anti-Semitic. So you can put this in, into kind of a Klan action as well. And the murderer is defended uh, by, by the Klan who pay for all the legal fees for Hugo Black. And the jury lets him off saying that he was innocent by reason of insanity because you know, any white man whose daughter marries a Negro can be expected to respond you know, violently and immediately. I don't even know what to say about that, that legal conclusion, I would have to say, but it just shows what the tenor of American legal society was at that point. When you were looking at how contemporaneous civil rights activists were trying to change 
both minds and laws, what were they focusing on? What were their goals and what did they try and stay away from in their requests and demands essentially for change? So the NAACP, which was the leading civil rights organization for African-Americans, they were focused beginning in the 1920s on education, on the kind of doing the step-by-step legal challenge to segregated schools that culminated in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. Um, And I think the other thing that they really focused on was voting rights. And for good reason, because most African-Americans were disenfranchised in the South in the 20s and 30s and 40s, um, really all the way way up until we get the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Uh, But the NAACP did make some really important inroads uh, in the previous decades. So those were the two things that they were mostly focused on. They didn't like to get into questions of sex. They didn't like to get into, they didn't like to have to defend people who were uh, on trial for rape, for example. They stood way back in 1932, 1931, when the Scottsboro Boys case uh, came up, which was nine um, young black boys, men accused of raping two white women. This didn't mean that they supported anti-miscegenation laws, though. And one of the things I found with the NAACP was that when push came to shove, they would stand up and say, we oppose all restrictive marriage laws. But they never said, the first thing we want, you know, at the top of our list is to get rid of anti-miscegenation laws. What's also been interesting to me, certainly this past week, as we've talked a lot about what insurrection is, is that there were these competing claims of insurrection essentially happening a hundred years ago where people were saying essentially, no, you're the insurrectionists for trying to overturn the white order. Oh, no, you're the insurrectionists for trying to overturn reconstructionist ideals. What has the role of insurrection played in, in the courts and in the discussions around the search for civil rights? Wow. Very interesting question. I'm just going through my head now are all these instances where people are calling each other insurrectionists. So, you know, white, white supremacists in the South thought the entire Warren Court, you know, was composed of insurrectionists and that they were overthrowing, you know, the Supreme Court in, in ruling against all kinds of segregation law was overthrowing that society uh, wrongly so that they were insurrectionists. You're right that the language of insurrection is thrown around a lot. Um, when you look at organizations like the White Citizens Council, which was an anti-civil rights organization that started in Mississippi in 1955 in reaction to Brown, it's perfectly clear that you know, they considered themselves revolutionaries, kind of, but also it's, you know, the South is always involved in a, in a counter-revolution, I think. The South is always trying to define what it's doing as in response to someone else's bad behavior. I think Jim McPherson was the one who first called the secession preventative, preemptive counter-revolution, which you have to stop and think about for a second. That's a double backflip, yeah. But it's absolutely right. So they do talk in this language about insurrection. They talk about taking back our government, taking back our society. There's very much the sense that the world we had has been taken from us, whether it's the world of slavery or the world of white supremacy, the world of Jim Crow. So there is the same language of grievance that we're hearing a lot of today. I think that one thing that needs to be discussed is the way 
that white women have been and are involved in white supremacist movements and in attempting to uphold this societal order of white supremacy. And I was reminded of the way we talk about white women in a different way by the death of Ashley Babbitt, who was shot as she was crawling through a broken window at the Capitol building to apparently attempt to chase down our elected representatives. Uh, I'm going on the video that we've seen so far. Again, this is January 11th. Uh, by the time you're listening to this, maybe even more has come out about this. But I was struck by the way the media discussed her and the way her own personal achievements were kind of being touted as, you know, she's an Air Force veteran and talking about her in ways that Black women who have not tried to enter the Capitol building in a mob have not been talked about. Is that something that struck you when you were processing everything that's gone on in the past week? Yes, absolutely. It seemed like they were trying to make her into a, a victim right away. And of course, she did get shot. But but they were immediately, oh, you know, def- it was like the defenseless white woman rhetoric coming out when this was a woman who knew her own mind and who had been an Air Force veteran. <laughs> you know, she flew planes. So there's a really good book by Elizabeth Gillespie McRae called Mothers of Massive Resistance. And it's a great book about white women who fought against, literally fought against brown, other kinds of school desegregation mostly. And we've forgotten how ugly these white women were, meaning that they would, you know, they would crowd around a New Orleans school and have a little tiny girl like Ruby Bates, who was five years old, walk past them while they spat on her and screamed and had all kinds of horrible signs. Um, White women have played important roles in white supremacist politics since Reconstruction. There are plenty of examples from the 19th century, but there are also contemporary examples. And we may have leaned over too far in talking about Trump voters, you know, it's white men who vote for Trump. And this crowd was predominantly men, but there were quite a few women. And I think, you know, if we look at the voting information, lots of white women voted for Donald Trump. So we shouldn't, you know, you can't look at all of them as if they are uh, victims. They're participants. And they were participants in a crowd and a mob that often was seeming to just highly being enjoying themselves. You saw people standing in the hallways of the Capitol laughing or smoking a cigarette. And really, it was a celebratory air. And I saw a lot of commenters being shocked by this. But am I right in thinking that this was not so different from many of the attitudes that were going on during a lynch mob? Absolutely. And by that, take it all the way up until the 1970s, at least. One one image that flew into my mind during during the, the crisis on Wednesday was of a white man, um, like a construction worker, spearing an African-American man dressed in a three-piece suit with an American flag in Boston in like 1970. Um, it's just a very famous image. And the same kind of thing of wielding the flag as a weapon against usurpers, uh, which is what I think a lot of these people in the crowd think. As far as lynching, yes, it does horribly remind you. Again, if you look at lynching photographs, which obviously are horrible to look at, 
one of the things that strikes you as this, the pictures, the faces of the mob that will be, you know, around the tree posing like, you know, with their, you know, their bagged deer, smiling, laughing. They've brought children. They've brought picnics. I was reminded very strongly of that um, by this mob. In your research, what seemed to be the most effective ways you saw of people fighting back against these attitudes and this ethos in both legal and social spheres? I think I've just asked you to how to solve racism. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Um, I, w- I would say, obviously, in the legal sphere, suing had good had good effects, although it was slow. You know, there were there were cases that the Supreme Court could have ruled on before the Loving decision in 1967, and they were split about it, and they ducked. So, you know, suing can be a very long, long, long process, but. But it did, you know, Loving, Loving elicited the only reference to white supremacy in a Warren court decision when Earl Warren says that this is, that these laws are just for the preservation of white supremacy, full stop, and they have to go. Um, so working through the courts can be, I think, very helpful and you know, productive and, and consequential. As far as um, relationships, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about the social what to say about the, the social realm. One of the anecdotes in the book that I was really struck by as well was this white publisher, I think his last name was Couch. Yes. He was tasked with putting together a book of essays called What the Negro Wants. Then he read the submitted essays by, you know, very distinguished Black men at the time. And he read them and he was horrified because oh my goodness, they're asking for so much. And he had this quote in the book, and I'm not going to get it directly, but he said, if this is what the Negro wants, well, he shouldn't want it. Yes, he should revise his wants, he said. And yeah, and this was a man who considered himself to be a civil rights advocate. And he was a progressive. He was a a parlor Bolshevik um, for the South. And I have to say that, you know, as a reader in 2021, I look at the list of what they say they want, and it seems very reasonable to me. But what were some of the things that he was horrified by that they would they would be asking for? It, it, it's interesting because he does. It's the middle of World War II. He wants to publish this book. He's he's the head of the University of North Carolina Press, and he's he's published a lot of things. He's published a lot of African American authors, for one thing, and so actually knows quite a bit about African American culture and history. And he does want to. He wants to publish a book called What the Negro Wants expecting it to say reasonable things, like the Negro wants um, segregation in schools and the private sphere, but would like to be able to vote and maybe maybe even run for office. And what he gets is a group of essays in which they, and these are very distinguished people, it's W.E.B. Du Bois, John Langston, Langston Hughes, Mary, Mary McLeod Bethune, and they all say, we want everything. You know, we just want equality, which means we want to get rid of, you know, segregated education. We want to get rid of disenfranchising laws. We want to get rid of laws prohibiting uh, intermarriage because they're unequal. They're, you know, a stigma. And, and, we, and they all agree on this. And that just blew Couch's mind. I mean, he could have expected Du Bois maybe to say that. He did not expect people who he thought were maybe more sensible than Du Bois to also say that. 
And that just completely freaked him out. It's true. You mentioned that he was uh, almost a Bolshevik. And there is a way that the fear of labor and fear of communism that was going on also, you know, between whites, a, a ruling class and a labor class of whites, was also happening and was being equated in some instances with, well, if you support rights for Black Americans, you must also be a communist. How did this link come to be fixed in some people's minds? Um, it was, I think it was fixed pretty er early by the Bolsheviks because people, people looking at Russia would say, oh my gosh, they're going to socialize women. <laughs> they're going to socialize sex. You know, they're going to get rid of marriage. So that was one argument that was made right away against the Bolsheviks. Um, the argument that tied civil rights work supposedly to communism in the United States was the communists, the Soviets, strict insistence on social equality, that discrimination by race was illegal in the Soviet Union. Um, if, you, if you were caught <laughs> discriminating, you, you were shamed, you were you know, kicked out of the party. And so, and a lot of you know, leading African-Americans, again, Langston Hughes and others, went to Moscow. They visited the Soviet Union in the 1920s. And in 1928, the American Communist Party, which... I don't know if you notice, usually has a, has a candidate on the ballot. Um, in 1928, they had, two can they had a presidential ticket that had an African-American man, James Ford, as the vice president nominee, and also as their platform said that anti-miscegenation laws, that all discri racially discriminatory laws, including anti-miscegenation laws, should be banned. And so after that, it was really easy for white supremacists to say that anybody who's against interracial marriage laws is a communist. Another labor-related fear that was going around was something that I'd actually never heard about at these Eleanor Clubs. Could you talk about the, I don't know, myth or actual existence of Eleanor Clubs? It's, yes, it's one of these crazy, crazy things. Eleanor Roosevelt, white Southerners who were white supremacists hated Eleanor Roosevelt. I mean, I think the way people hate Hillary Clinton is how they hated Eleanor Roosevelt, and for some of the same reasons, meaning that Eleanor Roosevelt was a very accomplished, intelligent uh, woman. She was a supporter of equal rights. She tried to counsel her husband in that direction. And so in the middle of the war, this is another instance, I think, of white Southerners trying to explain the behavior of African-American Southerners. Like, who are these people who want voting rights and who want to be paid a living wage? Um, and somebody came up with the idea that there were these secret clubs called Eleanor Clubs after the First Lady, and that they were plotting horrible things like making white women do their own housework. The that The black domestics, I know it's horrible, the black domestics were all going to quit or demand higher wages. And they could demand, they were demanding higher wages. And they could do that in this moment because of the war industries around them that were paying higher wages, not to black women. But the economy was shifting. But the idea that, that these women, you know, some white person had to have put this idea in their head for them to behave so terribly. Um, and the idea was that they were meeting in these Eleanor clubs. And, you know, some, some state governments, the governors actually sent people out looking for evidence of Eleanor clubs. And they didn't find any. To me, it just reflects this conspiratorial thinking thing that we really are having a spotlight shown on. Today, too, as you see adherents of QAnon and other 
theories about how, quote unquote, the vote was stolen, you know, and they are very fixated on majority Black counties, majority Black areas. And it's hard for me to think that that is a coincidence. Oh, no, it's not. And it's not a coincidence that the Republican Party has been trying to disenfranchise people basically since 1980, but especially since 2000. So there is a correlation between Black political power and Black people actually exercising that political power the way they did in this election, and um, white conspiracy theories about Black people and or about you know, election, election corruption. But yes, some of these QAnon people would have felt just right at home in the South in the 1930s. So your book, White Fright, The Sexual Panic at the Heart of America's Racist History, obviously we are urging people to buy this, but are there other books or resources that you think people should be drawing on? You mentioned uh, one a little bit earlier about specifically, you know, white women being involved in the efforts to uphold white supremacy. Yes, um, I can think of at least two books right away. One of them is by my my friend uh, Daniel Sharfstein, who is a law professor and historian at Vanderbilt. And he wrote a fantastic book a couple of years ago called The Invisible Line. And it's about racial identity. And he traces three families across three centuries who are moving uh, back and forth across the color line to talk and using legal cases to talk about what this thing race is and how it plays out in people's lives. And it's a wonderful book. A second book is by my colleague at the University of Chicago, Kathleen Ballou, and it's called Bring the War Home. And I'm forgetting the the subtitle, I'm afraid. But it's directly about these militias. It's about these white nationalist militias that are often linked, and it would be interesting to see with what happened this week, linked to people who have served in the armed forces, who come back from Vietnam, disillusioned and angry and trained with weapons. Timothy McVeigh, for example, was a veteran. And so she has looked over the course of 30 or 40 years at how these movements have grown, um, how they communicate, and what a clear and present danger they are. She wouldn't have been surprised by anything she saw this week. And obviously, we've been talking a lot about the January 6th events, but you also are releasing a book in the middle of a global pandemic. And after having worked on it for so long, I'm sure that this upended some of your plans, but do you have any webinars planned or or other appearances that our listeners can attend? Um, yes, let's see. I've done a couple, a couple already, but there is one I'm just trying to look on my, it's on February 9th at the New York Historical Society, and I'm going to talk about the book with Randall Kennedy uh, from Harvard Law School. When you're talking to your students, you do you do teach law students as well. Am I right about that? Yes. When you're talking to your classes, what are some of the points that you're hoping your law students take away from your lessons? What are you trying to impart to them? Well, in, in part, I mostly teach um, the civil rights movement to law students. So we talk a lot about what, what it means to be a movement lawyer. Um, and these, you know, the movement lawyers who came out of the NAACP and who, you know, who for them, their social movement was really in the courts. Uh, how to use, you know, law in these ways, how to use law to help people who don't have access to lawyers most of the time. But also to, I think, to think, to think critically about what law can and cannot do in order to advance civil rights. All right. Well, 
Jane, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If people were interested in getting in contact with you or seeing some of these upcoming events, is there a place that they could go to? They can always email me. That's fine with my University of Chicago email. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to my listeners. If you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Law Library, please rate, review, and subscribe at your favorite podcast listening service. And if there's a book that you'd be interested in us discussing with the author, you can always reach out to me at books at AmericanBar.com.